3: Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen, and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly.
2: I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells.
3: And today we're discussing First Monday in October, released the third Friday in August, a.k.a. August 21st, 1981. It was co-written by Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee, not that Robert E. Lee, <laughs> based on their own play, directed by Ronald Neim and released by Paramount. Pictures,
4: Because the other Robert E. Lee is really known for his film work. <laughs> he has a lot
3: of plays. <laughs> Lawrence and Lee's first Monday in October made its Broadway debut on October 3rd, 1978 with Henry Fonda in the Justice Snow role.
2: Was October 3rd a Monday.
3: Now I'm going to have to double check. October 3rd, 1978. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't look this up before. That was a Tuesday. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> That's dumb. Anyway... This came out on the first Tuesday in October of 1978.
2: They couldn't release it one day earlier. No,
3: I guess not. Maybe they had, like, some sort of a mishap. With Henry Fonda in the Justice Snow role and Jane Alexander from last season's Brew Baker as Ruth Loomis. When the film adaptation was first announced in May of 1979, William Holden and Ellen Burstyn were attached to star. Six months later, Holden had vacated the project, replaced with Henry Fonda reprising the Broadway role. His own daughter Jane Fonda was offered the role of Justice Ruth Loomis, but was bothered enough by the character's politics that she didn't believe she could play the part, and instead followed her father away to On Golden Pond.
2: Probably the smarter decision.
3: Yeah. Director Neim's first choice for the role was Anne Bancroft. Oh. The following year, Walter Matthau and Jill Clayburgh were locked in, but production was delayed slightly for the writer strike. They shot all the civilian sequences first so that Judge's robes could be used in the back half to disguise Clayburg's burgeoning pregnancy, but when she suffered a miscarriage, the film shut down to give her time to recuperate. Oh
2: my god.
4: Uh, I feel like I should comment on this in some way. I mean, it's... I, it's not like I'm particularly thrilled to be reviewing this film right now anyways just yes. because I have a general bad taste in my mouth about the... The uh, Supreme Court in yeah, general. Yeah, the the function of our government and the judiciary system. But, um, but you know, the fact that they might have arrested her based on what our justices just did yeah. I, it leaves a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth.
3: An old rule required that to shoot in any part of the Supreme Courthouse they needed the entire court's permission so they were restricted to exteriors, and built a half-million-dollar courthouse set on the Paramount lot. The original release was set closer to the actual first Monday in October, traditionally the beginning of the court's annual term, but the release was bumped way up to capitalize on President Reagan's nomination of the first woman, Sandra Day O'Connor, to the Supreme Court.
4: Oh, I didn't realize that was... uh...
3: It happened less than a month earlier.
4: Wow. Okay, so it was was factual when it was written this way, that there hadn't been a woman.
3: Yep. We open with shots of the architecture of the Supreme Courthouse building. Fun fact, on a field trip in the 8th grade I was thrown out of this building for (laughs) roughhousing with a classmate in the lobby. (laughs) Inside the building we cut to the office of the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court played by Barnard Hughes as he takes a call. He's just been informed of some unfortunate news and he's trying to get it to someone named Dan. Later we'll understand that Dan is Supreme Court Justice Dan Snow. The Chief Justice connects with Dan's wife, Christine, who just walked in from a trip to Europe and has no idea where her husband is. She finds a postcard that makes mention of a mountain climbing trip.
2: Did he happen to mention which mountain?
3: Yes, he loves that movie.
2: (laughs) Just about to say that, god damn it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We get a quick shot of Justice Snow played by Walter Matthau hiking through actual snow on his way toward a mountain peak. The Chief Justice gets through to a nearby forest ranger who delivers an urgent message to Dan via helicopter. Dan locates a phone at a local general store that looks more like a CB radio and speaks directly with the Chief Justice, now at home in his pajamas for the night. Everyone so far has referred to the Chief Justice by the initials CJ, which may or may not also be his name. Later we'll learn his name is James Crawford, so the nickname is actually a reference to his title, in addition to being his initials backwards. The important message is finally delivered to Justice Snow.
1: Stanley Moorhead died this morning.
3: Snow looks upset by the news and offers his condolences to Stanley's wife Alice. Presumably, Stanley is another justice of the Supreme Court. Stanley's will requested some actions of Justice Snow, and he is required in town. We cut right to Stanley's funeral.
2: I didn't understand this whole opening. Just start the movie at the funeral. Yeah. Like, it it, it seems so strange to have all this running around, trying to find him up in the mountains. Uh, Do you remember the last uh, film where somebody
4: unnecessarily sends a helicopter to pick somebody up for a job that needs to be done?
3: Yes, that was... Raise the Titanic? Yeah. Yeah. The minister, officiating the funeral, hands the microphone to Justice Snow for a eulogy. It sounds like Snow and Moorhead were at odds politically, but good friends. He starts by admitting that he's not the best choice to be giving this speech, but he's not about to file a dissenting opinion. The first court joke of the film.
1: Stanley and I were like a pair of flying buttresses. Leaning against opposite sides of a gothic cathedral, we helped keep the roof from caving in. If we'd both been on the same side all the time, we might have pushed the building over. Don't have to agree with a man in order to respect him. I,
4: I like this line. Yeah, it's yeah. it's
3: a vivid metaphor, and it's probably the best writing the film has to offer going forward. Yeah,
4: but I, you know, I I like, uh, I like that they start out with him presenting, you know, you know, fair and balanced concept of of what he believes in, because right. I feel like that's really crucial to the heart of this film.
3: Yeah, and I feel like the metaphor works better than the real life, though, because if one of these people is correct and the other person is wrong, then it's not going to ruin anything for them to agree with each other. No,
4: no, no. This entire movie is the fantasy of what the Supreme Court is supposed to be. Right, exactly. It's not the reality. Yeah,
3: it's like the (laughs) West Wing version. Yeah. Yeah. He ends the speech by mentioning how Stanley mocked his mountain climbing hobby and suggests that Justice Moorhead has now climbed the highest mountain of them all. Moorhead gets a 21-gun salute, and a marching band plays America the Beautiful. Do you guys recall the last 21-gun salute we saw?
2: Was it military or police?
3: I think police.
2: Oh Yeah, I was going to say I thought it was police, but I'm trying to remember what movie that... Oh! What? Eye for an Eye?
3: Yeah, I I think there was one at at Terry Kaiser's funeral in that. Most of the score to the film is actually just standard military marches performed by a marching band. The flag over Moorhead's coffin is folded properly and presented to CJ, who turns and gives it to Stanley's widow, Alice. As they drive home from the funeral, Dan and his wife Christine have two completely separate conversations. She's worried about Stanley's widow and considers hosting an event for her, while Dan complains about media speculation over Stanley's replacement while hypocritically speculating himself. Their conversation only overlaps long enough to catch up on the news of their recent vacations.
1: How was Europe?
5: Wet. How was your
3: Hi. The next day, it's back to work, and Justice Snow arrives to a desk crowded with papers. A young man named Mason Woods delivers a cart full of law books and offers to prepare a drink for Justice Snow.
1: Uh, Would you give her some tea, Mr. Justice, or um, a scotch? Maybe I better have both. No, I don't want to overdo it. Forget the tea.
3: Mason gives him some rulings that support his argument against a company called Omnitech but he tells Mason that the Omnitech case will be struck from consideration because the other justices are chicken shits. Snow continues calling out Mason for being too polite and agreeing with him too much.
1: And don't always agree with me. If you think I'm wrong and don't say so, then what the hell good are you? I like law clerks who argue with me. Yes, sir. Uh, No, sir. I mean, I'll try to do that, sir. Um, not to do that, sir. What's this?
3: Mason talks through a case involving a t-shirt that read, fuck the White House, somehow landing a man in court. Snow asks if the guy's pants were down to determine if it was a sincere threat. Otherwise, who cares?
1: (laughs) Well, the Ninth Circuit held it was offensive to the public sensibility. Just being offensive is not an offense. He
3: reads the decision from the Ninth Circuit Court, and specifically the words of Judge Ruth Loomis.
1: Free speech is not ipso facto filthy speech dirt is a splendid environment for earthworms but it is a grave for the human mind i wish to hell she didn't write so goddamn well
3: he tells mason that protecting america from judges like loomis is exactly what the supreme court is for snow gets a phone call but mason has to answer it because snow's secretary Ratibo has been excused sick for the day it's mrs snow calling asking how to arrange the seating for tonight's dinner party and he's a complete asshole about it.
1: I don't care how you see him. Try chairs. She hangs up on him, and rightly so. Hello?
3: Hello? CJ stops by to visit. As Mason steps out, Snow asks him to try and get one of those Fuck the White House shirts for under his robes. CJ has news on the new appointment.
1: Who is he? Mr. Justice Snow, I'm going to have to ask you to rephrase that question. A woman. He picked a woman. Great. Good for him. It'll be fun. Who is it?
3: Snow's elation is short-lived, however, when he learns that the president has tapped Ruth Hagedorn Loomis of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Hagedorn? That's an interesting middle name.
1: Ruth Loomis, the mother superior of Orange County? What goes through a man's head when he makes an appointment like that?
3: The phone rings again, and this time CJ is left to answer it. It's the Washington Post reaching out for comment. Apparently they've already gotten word. Snow waves off the call. The phone rings again, and again Snow ignores it. How could you just let it ring? Telephone
1: has no constitutional right to be answered.
3: CJ tells Snow to think before offering his own resignation from the court, but Snow is so terrified by the president's latest choice that he can't imagine who he'd be replaced with, guessing perhaps Shirley Temple, who at the time was very active in the Republican Party.
4: No, I thought it was more of a joke than that.
3: Was it could have been.
2: Yeah, because I think at that point uh, she was married and she was so she was Shirley Temple Black. Right. And I know she was very involved in politics.
3: Yeah. Coincidentally, Shirley Temple and Walter Matthau have a common title in their filmographies, but Matthau appears in the remake. Do you guys recall the last Walter Matthau movie we reviewed that was a remake of a Shirley Temple movie? I
4: do. Little Miss Marker.
3: That's right. Wasn't Hopscotch? Nope. We cut to Ruth Loomis as played by Jill Clayburgh practicing tennis with a friend, Bill Russell. Her friend is obviously impatient about being just a friend and says that a year is a long time to be a widow, but she corrects him that her husband has only been dead for seven months to hammer home just what a complete asshole this guy is, and yet she claims he's at the top of her list of future prospects. Loomis gets a page about a phone call and steps away from the tennis court. We see her through a window as she picks up the phone and then suddenly stands up at attention as though she were with the president in person as
2: he informs her
3: of her appointment to the Supreme Court.
2: Well, her nomination.
3: Right. We cut from here to the Richard Brevard Russell Building Senate offices, where Loomis is being subjected to her confirmation hearing. Her first question is about her financial assets and if there's any investment that may reflect her ruling in a case. She asserts that upon her ascension to the Ninth Circuit, she disposed of any potential conflicts of interest. Together with her husband, she ran a law firm called Loomis & Loomis, but her husband took complete control when she took her federal post, and even claims that the stress of running the firm alone may have had a hand in his death. She is asked if she personally ever represented Omnitech International or its chairman, Donald Richards, because they have a pending case with the court, and she claims never to have represented them, and has no knowledge whether he was represented by the firm after she left. She's asked if she remains in contact with any member of the firm and admits to regular tennis matches with Bill Russell, who was brought on at the firm when she left. Bill chuckles to himself watching the confirmation on a television in a bar. One of the senators asks if she's too young to join the Supreme Court, and she points out that Snow was a year younger than her when he was appointed. At the time of the film's release, Kleberg was 37, which would have made Snow 36, but Justice Douglas, on whom Snow is based, was appointed at 40. Sandra Day O'Connor was 51 when she was appointed.
4: What's the youngest appointee?
3: The youngest ever was Joseph Story, who at just 32 years old was appointed by Madison to replace William Cushing, one of the original five Supreme Court justices nominated by George Washington.
4: Well, it's less impressive when like yeah. you know, 32 was,
2: uh, was getting up there in yeah. the years.
3: <laughs> Do you feel your decisions on the high court might be influenced by the fact that Well, you're a woman?
5: I hope so. Uh, Aren't a man's decisions influenced by the fact that he's a man?
3: The women in the audience for the confirmation are erupting into applause for every answer she gives, even though she's an especially conservative justice and probably not a terrific feminist representative. We get a quick shot of Mrs. Snow watching the confirmation from home, but she seems less enthusiastic than the in-person audience. Later, it becomes clear that her problem is with the attractive new justice that will be working alongside her husband. One of the senators points out for no apparent reason that she has no children, and it turns out the only reason it gets mentioned is to set her up for an answer that she considers her decisions in court to be her children.
5: We are the the parents of our ideas, and uh, so my, my children, in other words, my opinions, my decisions, are the result of conception, and the delivery is, is sometimes painful. You may not like my children. You may find them ugly, but by God, your ideas and mine have equal rights to live together, to grow, to change, even to die.
3: Mrs. Snow stands to turn off the television after this answer. We see men carrying Justice Loomis's seat behind the bench where she is to serve, and one of the moving men notices a spittoon beside her chair.
1: Does the lady need this? We'll tell her it's a wastebasket.
4: I didn't realize it was a spittoon. I thought I was like, do they pee behind
0: there? Yeah, that's like,
2: it. <laughs> it's a chamber pot.
3: Yeah. <laughs> they
2: Some, are in a chamber. Sometimes it's a long day in here. <laughs> Just get rid of it. like. Well,
3: not- you have to leave it there.
2: <laughs> like Exactly. I was like, why does it have to stay?
3: Yeah.
4: It's disgusting, though, that they would actually, that the men would even use that during a proceeding. Right?
3: Well, it's funny, though, when Tina Fey writes about working at 30 Rock, during SNL, jars of urine. everyone would just... All the writers kept jars of their own urine on their desk. They would just pee in jars and wow. save it.
2: Well, that, she wrote an episode about that.
4: Yeah, Why? and Why? it was
3: based on, on real life.
4: Why can you not walk down the hallway?
3: Because writers are lazy.
2: I can't go. Like, I'm in a room full of people. I can't
3: do it. Well, they do it with their door closed in their own office. Oh. Then I can. That's that's fair game. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, I do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> what does he say? Judith Fiery Lander is like, That's what you use the jars for? You told me that was sun tea.
0: Some of them are sun tea, and some of them were sun tea.
3: <laughs> <laughs> we cut to the official robing ceremony as the justices begin their terms on the first Monday in October. All of the men are robed up in one chamber, whining about cooties like a bunch of fucking children.
1: You suppose you'll want to hang chintz curtains everywhere? I hate
3: chintz. Why am I nervous? She's the one who should be nervous.
2: Why would she hang curtains in the Supreme Court building?
3: I don't know, why does this guy give so much of a shit about the curtains?
2: How does
4: he even know what chintz is? I don't even know what chintz is.
3: I don't get it. Loomis arrives and thanks CJ for the gift of roses.
1: You don't send me roses anymore, CJ. I like that line.
3: Each of the justices shakes her hand before entering the courtroom. It looks like Snow is about to let her enter first, but then he cuts in front of her at the last second. When court is in session, an attorney from Nebraska reads off a tirade against what he has deemed pornography, unfit for exhibition in his state. One of the justices passes a note down the line to Snow while the attorney makes his case, and when Justice Snow opens the note, it just says horseshit inside. Only Loomis seems to be taking the man's words to heart as he condemns pornographer Herbert G. Maloney, whose attorney rises to invoke the First Amendment.
5: The First Amendment doesn't give anybody the right to commit acts which are harmful to the public good.
1: But this is an educational film, a major documentary, a work of art. How can we judge that until we've seen it?
3: I'm not sure why this attorney would make these claims when all that is necessary to point out is that the film does no harm. Yeah. Most of the bench agree that they'll have to see the film themselves to properly decide its fate. We cut right to a private screening of The Naked Nymphomaniac. After the title card, we get a reverse angle under the stereotypically porny score on the uncomfortable faces of the judges watching. Coupled with the film's narration about a girl addicted to sex, the point was already made, but for whatever reason they decided to include graphic sexual scenes, which brought the rating up from a PG to an R. Huh. Unlike our previous film, this brief pornographic segment was not shot original for the film, but acquired from pornographer David F. Friedman, producer of video-nasty Nazi-sploitation titles Love Camp 7 and Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS. A group of young men bust into the projection booth, eager to catch a glimpse of the film from upstairs. One at a time, the justices reviewing the film express embarrassment and eventually call for the film to be stopped.
4: It seems like a weird inclusion. What? Like, to, to bother to show the film. To show
3: the footage? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. agree. I think I think it would have been fine if we just saw the title and then you just show their faces and you hear right. it.
4: Yeah, well, and even just all of the young guys coming in staring through the projection booth windows.
3: Yeah. One at a time, the justices reviewing the film express embarrassment and eventually call for the film to be stopped. The presence of the first woman Justice means they're no longer free to enjoy such filth with their hands under their robes. Loomis worries that the film has been stopped on her account.
1: Time is the point, gentlemen and Madam Justice, and we have a responsibility not to waste it. I have seen enough to make my decision.
3: Loomis suggests to CJ that Snow seems to have disqualified himself from judging the film's merits by not seeing it. Then she sits down to watch the rest. Justice Snow takes a seat in a barber chair in the courthouse when another of the justices enters and says that he disagrees with Loomis's motion. Snow hasn't heard the motion, and the man suggests he should hear it from CJ and leaves. Snow thinks for a second and then vacates the barber chair to get an answer. CJ informs him of Loomis's recommendation, and he is livid. He goes to pay her a visit. Outside her office, he notices a cartoon of the scales of justice with eight men on one side and a woman outweighing them all on the other. Snow is surprised to see Loomis has employed a male law clerk and she corrects him that Mr. Robinson is her secretary.
1: Well, 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 what a generous gesture. Letting men into a field previously dominated by the other sex.
5: I'm glad you're in favor of men's lib.
3: He asks facetiously if she's seen The Naked Nymphomaniac, and when she offers her condemnations, he suggests a series of ridiculous changes that could have been made to the film to make it suitable for release. New titles like The Fully Clothed Nymphomaniac or The Naked Methodist. Loomis begins her response by pointing out Snow's inherent sexism by referring to her as justess instead of justice, which is actually just a failure of the writers. If this justice is supposed to be the radical progressive, it doesn't make any sense that he would make these vaguely sexist comments all through the film.
4: I also didn't notice that he was saying justess until they said this line. I'm like, oh, was he not just saying
2: justice? Yeah. Oh, I only noticed it because
3: in the subtitles, it says just hyphen E-S-S when he says it
2: and i thought he was saying just ass like like he was trying to like she's a piece of ass or just that she is an ass in oh, general okay. um like but he was trying to say it in such a way that it it's like are you saying just ass or justice yeah but
4: well either way n- no matter how you form that joke it does not work for its yeah, intended use here i agree here.
3: When it gets to the heart of the case though, the writers seem to never have bothered consulting with a real conservative person for their thoughts, and so the Loomis character becomes a meandering strawman, blaming pornographic films for violence in the streets and the drug epidemic, without making so much as a correlational link, let alone causal. Even Clayburgh seems annoyed by the dialogue because it doesn't make any sense and serves only to bolster the character of Justice Snow when he shoots it all down. It reminds me of the first episode of The West Wing, which is obviously a well-written show. Some of the best dialogue on network television has come from Aaron Sorkin, but he often underwrites the characters he disagrees with for easy points embarrassing them. In the pilot, they're arguing with a bunch of bigwigs from the religious right, and one of them repeatedly claims that the first commandment is to honor thy father, only to set up President Josiah Bartlett's epic opening line of dialogue for the series.
1: The first commandment says, Honor thy father. No, it doesn't. Toby. It doesn't. Listen, to- no. I mean, if I'm going to make you sit through this preposterous exercise,
5: we're going to get the names of the damn commandments right. Okay, here we go. Honor
1: thy father is the third commandment. Then what's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt worship no other God before me. Boy, those were the days, huh?
3: It's a great moment, and it sets up the character as a godlike imparter of wisdom, but it makes absolutely no sense that these Bible thumpers don't know the commandments, and especially that they would ask the liberal White House staff what the commandment was. For some reason, in the West Wing universe, all the liberals have the Bible memorized just so they can embarrass religious people with its contents. Loomis continues making absolutely no sense for the rest of this scene because the writers don't understand their opposition.
1: No, thank you, ma'am. I think it's
3: unconstitutional to set myself up as a censor.
5: Refusing to look at something is censorship.
3: What are you fucking talking about? That is literally nobody's definition of censorship.
5: Well,
1: I don't look at television. That doesn't make it illegal.
5: That's not the point.
3: That's exactly the point. Loomis asks if the right to free speech would protect a documentary on how to make a nuclear weapon, as if that were comparable to showing people what a lady's boobies look like. (laughs) She also admits immediately that such a film would be considered inciting violence, which is already a crime, which, according to her, is on par with inciting decadence, which is not a crime. She tells him that the victim of a crime like this is the child who has to endure this filth, and he doesn't bother to point out that kids aren't allowed into these types of movies, and that almost any movie that isn't a documentary will give you a flawed perception of reality. Like if you watched this movie, you might think that anyone believes that not watching something is censorship, but nobody thinks that. (laughs) When Snow leaves her office, she follows him all the way back to his office to engage in a bit of role play, addressing him as the free speech defendant Maloney. She invites Snow to take the stand as Maloney. She tells him about Nebraska's unconstitutional pornography ban, and he reminds her that he is protected by the First Amendment. She accuses him of abusing the freedoms of Nebraskans, but doesn't explain how he's doing that in any way. She decides here to pick on Maloney's assertion that his work is art, but the First Amendment doesn't just protect art, it protects speech. He says that there's nothing wrong with making films just for the prospect of money, and she nonsensically replies,
5: Does the Constitution give you the right to do anything for money?
3: I know Jill Kleberg is the smart person, and it had to bother her that the character she's playing here is written as such an idiot. I have a right to free speech. Rights, huh? Does that mean you have the right to murder people? Checkmate. <laughs> Next, she pivots to compare porn to pollution, as if it affects everyone who doesn't partake.
1: air's different. You gotta breathe. You don't have to go to the movies.
3: Finally, she admits that the film does literally no harm to anyone, and she's out of ideas.
1: Has anyone died from seeing the naked nymphomaniac? What about injury
5: to the spirit?
1: The spirit?
2: What are we talking about now? I do like that uh, CJ walks in to talk to Snow and just hears the argument and just turns around and walks yeah. out and I think it's right
3: when she's like talking about dog shit or something and yeah. he spins around to leave. She concludes her argument by continuing to imply that citizens are being forced to watch porn at gunpoint. Bizarrely after she leaves, Snow seems intimidated by her nonsense.
1: That woman is positively dangerous. The men on this court have got to stick together, Mason. After all, there are only eight of us left against all of her.
3: Aside from the two main characters of this film, we don't get a clear indication of the political leanings of the rest of the justices, but it does seem like there are maybe 7 conservative judges and 2 progressives since Justice Clues slipped him the horseshit note during yeah. the Nebraska attorney's remarks.
2: Well, we get we get more of a conviction from one of the justices in the next scene with the photo shoot.
3: Right. And later Snow will call it a 4-5 court, but we rarely see anyone on his side. We cut to the justices sitting for their official photo together. They all pick on Snow, for getting to write all the minority opinions for the court.
1: Well, a man's gotta decide whether to be on the right side or the winning side. Once in a while, they're the same.
3: The argument gets louder, and it quickly becomes clear that the disagreement is about the justices who are refusing to hear the case against OmniTech because they think Snow is a socialist out to destroy all successful businesses. Snow's patience for the photo runs out, and he leaves, suggesting they Photoshop him into the group using last year's photo. We cut to Snow, arriving home, where he finds his wife's vehicle being loaded with suitcases.
1: Where are you going? Not to Europe again.
5: Much farther than that. Virginia.
3: It turns out she's leaving him. He doesn't understand why, so she covers his eyes and asks him to describe the wallpaper.
5: What color is it? What design? Who memorizes
1: wallpaper?
3: She thinks she's made a solid case for divorce. After all, Snow can't even be bothered to care about the things that really matter, like their fucking living room wallpaper. After she leaves, he literally has to switch pairs of glasses just to see the wallpaper, meaning she left him for having bad eyesight. I get that you want the audience to like Walter Matthau, but just have him say a bunch more asshole things like on the phone earlier when he said try chairs. Just have him be short and a jerk to her. And well, that's why she leaves.
4: I feel like I would have appreciated him being a little bit more well-rounded because he was, he's like supposed to just be like this person that is totally right all the time in this yeah. movie and it's kind of obnoxious it's
3: annoying for him to be so infallible and his wife anytime you have a character like this it's always unbelievable when the wife leaves because you haven't written him up as the enough of a jerk you need to make him a real jerk
4: yeah the the only the only reason he's a jerk is that he's dedicated to his job right. which is serving the nation
3: right exactly you don't have to make every woman in his life completely irrational for the audience to side with him occasionally we cut back to the tennis courts where Snow's clerk Mason is meeting up with Justice Loomis for a few games. On the way back to the Supreme Court House, she picks his brain a bit on Justice Snow. But just then, he pulls up next to them at a light. In his chambers later, he's suspicious of Mason.
1: You're not a double agent, are you, Mason? No, sir. We, we just get in a set of tennis about once a week
0: for breakfast. She plays very well for a uh, justice of the Supreme Court. She's got a hell of a backhand, sir.
1: Yeah, I know. I've seen it work. I like that line too.
3: Now we start digging into probably the cheesiest plot line of the film. The case revolves around Omnitech and the so-called Momentum Engine. A team of experts testify that the engine works, but Omnitech claims that it doesn't for profit reasons somehow, and the stockholders are demanding an explanation. Apparently the chairman of Omnitech, Donald Richards, has bought and buried all the related patents, and it sounds like they're supposed to stand in as a metaphor for early efforts to prevent electric cars from reaching the market. Yeah. Somehow the company cannot be served to appear in court, only Chairman Richards, but he's nowhere to be found. And if they can't find you, everything is legal, I guess. The next morning, Snow and Loomis take the elevator up from the parking structure together, and he notices she has an umbrella and tells her that the weather services are constantly wrong. He invites her on a little field trip to the Smithsonian.
1: Understand I wouldn't dream of trying to change your mind for the world, but there's something at the Smithsonian I think you ought to look at.
5: Some early American pornography?
3: She agrees to join him on the trip this afternoon. He offers to drive, but his car is a convertible, and she was right about the weather. It's pouring. Why don't we
2: take my car? It has a top. Well, his car has a top too.
3: Yeah, presumably he could close it. He yeah. just isn't. He just drove out into the rain. They park at the curb right out in front of the Smithsonian, and the camera zooms in real close on Loomis's headlight to hammer home that she has left them on as they head inside.
4: It reminded me of student bodies where we're just like putting in an arrow directly to the yeah. thing you have to notice unlocked
3: <laughs> he leads her directly to an exhibit with the momentum engine when she gets it started it continues running on its own it's literally a perpetual motion machine and he's arguing that it could help humanity but Omnitech is burying it it's on display here yeah it's it's not buried people could make this Let's... they just can't sell it
4: it's also clearly not a perpetual motion machine right. because he had to put some energy into it to get it to start.
3: That's true, because if it was perpetual, it would have been going from the last time somebody did it. Yeah. But it uses that energy and it, magnifies it, it's it somehow. highly
4: efficient yes. engine. Yeah.
3: What is the actual case being presented, though? If they own the patent, it's their right to bury the technology. Earlier, they made it sound like the stockholders were bringing the case, but why right. would the stockholders want to hurt the company's profits by demanding answers on this momentum engine?
2: I, I think the movie should have not included the pornography case as like the case to start it off
3: i'm fine with that part i just think don't make the stockholders the one pressing charges against their own company because it doesn't make sense because what helps the company helps them right in this big case even though they were in the smithsonian for less than five minutes by the time they get back to the car the battery is dead snow is amused because she was just defending the internal combustion engine before this one failed her The filmmaker wants us to connect the dots and understand that if there were a hand crank here in the car, she could be back on the road in no time. But no such technology exists, and as soon as it does, it belongs to the person who invented it, or whoever buys it from that person.
4: But also, the reason that the car is not working is not a shortcoming of an internal combustion engine. It's the battery of the car that died. That has nothing to do with it.
3: Exactly. (laughs) They walk to a nearby Chinese restaurant for lunch while they wait for the auto club to restart her car. Loomis orders a meal for Snow in fluent Mandarin I'm assuming a specific dialect because like Snow I don't speak any Chinese he assumes that she's ordering poison for him Snow takes note of the wallpaper and then puts a hand over Loomis's eyes to test her What's on the wall? Wallpaper Uh, What color? Gold Any pattern? Yes What is it?
5: Uh, Cherry blossoms with bluebirds
3: He tells her that her obsession with wallpaper is reflective of her problems as a judge She cares about all the wrong things When the conversation comes back to Omnitech, she basically argues that the corporation is too big to fail. She argues that corporations are, in essence, people, and they deserve all the same protections. Snow has heard enough and tries to walk away when he can see he isn't making a dent in her perspective. Corporate personhood has been enshrined in American law and has wreaked havoc on our legislative system, especially in conjunction with the 2010 Citizens United decision, which established that a political donation is essentially free speech, and as people, corporations have limitless rights to free speech. It basically broke Congress because decisions are now made by corporate lobbyists as opposed to the electorate. Snow demands a check and plans to leave by cab but quickly realizes that he has not brought his wallet and sits down to finish his dim sum instead. That night Loomis is working late and clips a flower from a vase to use as a bookmark. She asks a member of the courthouse staff to deliver it to Snow in the morning but it turns out Snow's still in the building. She's directed to the courthouse and to deliver the books and flower herself. She finds him at his chair behind the bench and gifts him the books, decisions of hers from the lower court and he promises to read them. Before she can leave, he asks her as a woman how repulsive she finds him and she hesitates to answer. She offers him a ride home and he insinuates no one is there waiting for him.
5: I heard that, sorry. It's
1: your fault, you know. My fault? I think my wife thinks that I spent so much time being furious at you that I don't have enough energy left to be furious with her. And I have a hunch she thinks I consider you attractive. Where is this coming from?
4: This is the worst part of the entire film. I, I yeah. hated it. It, it. It's entirely unnecessary to the story. In fact, it's counterproductive to yeah. the story. And even if they wanted to go this way, they never resolve that. Right. Like, after the scene, it's really not relevant.
3: Aside from seeing her watch the confirmation, we've gotten no indication of how Mrs. Snow feels about Loomis. She also never mentioned anything about it on her way out. So either Snow is making this up to garner sympathy, or the writers have failed in another important aspect of the story. I was also very much enjoying that this was not a romantic story and just yeah. two people learning to tolerate each other's opinions, yeah. and this ruins that. Yep. Especially when he confirms that he does, in fact, find her attractive, and his wife was right to worry. Because we can't have a lady justice without having one of the old men fall in love with her. He tries to change the subject by reading through the booklets she brought, and repeats his frustration that she's such a great writer and yet so wrong. Again, he whines about Donald Richards not taking the risk of standing trial to defend his own company, so Loomis takes the stand to play him and allow Snow to ask the questions he has. This exercise doesn't really make any sense, though, because she doesn't have the information that this character she's playing would have. Correct. He accuses Richards of dodging subpoenas and of intentionally killing revolutionary technology. But again, he frames it as an offense against his own stockholders, which doesn't make sense because Richards is a majority stockholder, so he wouldn't hurt company profits to spite his fellow stockholders. Whatever he's doing with the patents he rightfully owns is in the service of maximizing Omnitech's profits. Presumably, the Momentum engine would only help consumers and not the company as a whole.
2: He, he brings up an interesting point um, uh, about the nature of a, te- a piece of technology, though, that changes things so dramatically. Sure. That you can own the patent on it, but you can't stop it from being made. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh this is a totally off topic but this is this is the deeper subject matter of that film steamboy that 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 i love so much yeah um is that it, uh i think walter matthew's point of view in this is that this this would change everything and to squash it makes no sense
3: i mean it it makes financial sense it but just doesn't done, make sense for human progress. But he
4: hasn't done anything illegal. Right, exactly. So w- why are we even arguing about this?
3: Yeah, uh, that's the part that bothers me is that he's pretending like that just because this is immoral that it's illegal. And it's like, this is the same as the pornography well, thing. That it's, this yeah, is just a person just doing the, something to make money that you don't like.
4: It's the other yeah. way around. Yeah. It's the same argument.
3: Loomis, as Richards, points out that it's not the obligation of Omnitech to risk its own capital on technology, which they have determined does not work. Now it's Snow's turn to not make any sense when he tries to compare the Momentum engine to the light bulb and claims that even though Edison owned the idea of the light bulb, everyone else owns the light. But the
1: light itself belongs to everybody, and nobody, nobody has a right to turn on the darkness.
3: What does that mean? I agree with your point that this is eventually someone else will find a new way to make the thing, Yeah, and then it will be out there, and that's fine, but it seems like his argument is just you have to release this thing because it exists. And it's like, no, the point is someone else will release it eventually because they can reverse engineer it from the one in the Smithsonian.
2: Right, because it's there.
3: Yeah, it's out there in public. In the middle of his arguments, Snow develops a tantalizing theory to explain Richards' absence. Holy
2: Christ, you know
1: what I think? I think you're dead, Donald Richards. I think you've been dead for a long time. Eight, maybe ten years. It's been that long since anyone has seen you. And if you are dead, who is running Omnitech?
3: Loomis seems particularly disturbed by the idea. Snow continues espousing the conspiracy theory that a cabal are conspiring to avoid inheritance taxes and simulating continuity of ownership for their own personal gain, but then we get a harsh sting in the score and Snow half collapses against a podium, suddenly dripping with sweat. We cut right to the sirens of an ambulance blaring. Do you guys recall the last time we saw an ambulance like this with an orange stripe all the way around it?
4: Cannibal Cannibal Run?
3: Run? I think so. It's possible there was one in SOB, but I couldn't find it in time for the record. But I think Cannibal Run for sure. While Dan Snow recovers in the hospital, the rest of the justices head into a session. Loomis asks for a 24-hour window to check on something in California. We cut right to her touching down at John Wayne Airport in Orange County, and Bill Russell accompanies her to the offices of the former Loomis & Loomis firm.
2: She must have flown into a larger airport first before she got on that plane. There's no way that you don't plane... think she
3: took that biplane the whole way yeah, from Washington was like, D.C.? Where, where
2: did she fly from?
3: They had to refill every hundred miles. Russell confirms to her dismay that Loomis and Loomis did in fact represent Omnitech, but there's likely nothing to worry about. He gives her a small stack of papers and claims it's all her husband's records on Omnitech. She reads something disconcerting in her husband's chicken scratches that Russell was unable to translate, and she asks to be taken to the Beacon's warehouse. She locates a locked cabinet of paperwork and assumes correctly that Russell has the key to it. He hands it over and within the cabinet she locates the smoking gun against Omnitech. Russell tells her to put the paper back and make things easy on everyone.
5: If you think I'm going to shove this back into the dark to protect you, or the firm, or myself, you're dead wrong.
3: We cut to a hospital where Justice Snow has set up shop at a payphone and is continuing to do his work by phone. He instructs Mason not to let the other justices vote against a hearing on Omnitech until he gets back, as if Mason could stop that in any way. The nurses usher him away from the phone and back to his room where he is expected to recuperate. Loomis shows up for a visit. She announces first that she is resigning her position, and second that Loomis and Loomis represented Omnitech. A doctor enters to interrupt their chat and Loomis sees a window to sneak out without Snow objecting to her decision. Then we get one of the weirdest cuts in the movie, Suddenly we're in Loomis's home, watching her completely nude through frosted shower glass as someone rings her doorbell. She robes up to answer it and finds Snow at the door, evidently having escaped the hospital against the wishes of his medical staff. He's here to find out why she thinks she's quitting the court.
5: Are you well enough to talk?
3: I'm even well enough to listen. She shows him what she found in the warehouse, a death certificate for Donald Richards. Because Omnitech had previously committed no arguable crime, they needed a sudden injection of fraud for the Justice Snow character to save face. She's sticking to her resignation, but he tells her that's preposterous. Even if she can convince people that she didn't know about all this, there's no way it wouldn't taint her entire career. Especially if, as I started to worry here, the president was in on it and appointed her specifically to help bury the information. Like I was worried that it was gonna go much deeper. Yeah. She confirms repeatedly that she did not know, but doesn't want everyone to assume she did, and he reminds her that her job is not her reputation, but the work she does.
1: Quitting the court without good reason is spitting in the face of the government that put you there. At the least,
3: I probably would recuse myself with regard to this specific case. Yeah, But she's moved by his insistence that she stick around and gives him a quick peck on the cheek.
1: I never thought I'd ever kiss a Supreme
3: Court justice.
5: You didn't kiss me. I kissed you.
2: Well, I don't even know if there would be a case because once this information... It seems like a whole new trial, yeah. Yeah, like once this information goes public that it would have caused immediately problems. You can't, it wouldn't be revealed in a Supreme Court yeah, case. Yeah, it
3: would be new evidence for a lower court. Yeah. He promises not to die if she doesn't resign from the court. They head right to the courthouse to decide Omnitech's legal fate. As they ascend the steps, they argue about all the upcoming cases on the docket, and it's clear they intend to spend years arguing like this.
5: You know something? You and I make each other possible.
3: Damn right we do. As they head into the building, we cut back out to the street where a marching band plays the end first monday in october guys
2: yeah
4: well the the acting was good
3: the acting was good the writing is really bad
4: well the it ha, it had a couple of moments yeah you know and i think we called them out mostly where it was a good line here or there but it's it's frustrating
2: yeah where where's the climax of this movie i think it's
3: when he's having his heart attack or whatever
2: is that is that it i mean it's it's like i i guess i I, is this a courtroom drama like uh i feel like this movie didn't couldn't decide if it was a courtroom movie because we spend so much time on a case yeah the OmniTech case there's that that there's all this going on but
3: i don't even understand what the case is i don't know what the charges are yeah
2: and and there's no clear resolution there's no I want the truth. You can't handle the truth moment. Yeah. There's there's the literally case. no
3: explanation of what the case is that's the center point of this entire film. All they say is there's a company that has access to technology. Stockholders are curious.
2: Yeah. Trial.
3: It, this went through every court on the way to the Supreme Court. What is the decision being made?
2: The movie should have been the Omnitech case from the beginning. She comes in, new justice, they're making their arguments. The the be be a movie about the Supreme Court. Yeah. Like yeah. uh and and just focus on the one that's like this whole the whole pornography thing. Like is like you're, we're spending too much time on something that we never get a resolution to right. either. Yeah. We get no resolutions on any of the cases that they're deciding and that's yeah. so unsatisfying in yeah. a Supreme Court movie.
3: <laughs> because the I think the point of this movie is just supposed to be far left, far right, getting along. Yeah. That's it. That's all they wanted. And I I feel like they really flubbed it because they it seems like they didn't talk to anybody on the right to get their actual opinions on things, so they just guessed at how these people think. And so what they guessed doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't sound like any conservative argument I've ever heard against pornography or in favor of you know corporations and things like that. It just doesn't sound like the way that actual conservative people talk about these things. It just comes across as his fantasy of like what would be the easiest thing for me to diffuse with a witty sarcastic remark yeah and he just does it over and over again for the whole movie so her her character is so underwritten that by the end of the movie it just seems like an idiot was somehow appointed to the supreme court and they just got to embarrass her the whole time but that it's like oh but look we can still be friends it's like that's not good you should she should be embarrassing him as often as he's embarrassing her
4: yeah
2: i get really confused with her friend in the beginning who was the co-conspirator and yeah to, bill russell well because i really when you got two characters that um one's a fictional you know, uh, or unknown dead is the the donald richards and william russell is like yeah they both have first names yeah and, and first names as first names and last names and yeah. i got really confused as to who was <laughs> who also how weird is it that this movie is about a ruth a female Ruth? i know before ruth, ruth ten Peter years Ginsburg. before ruth Pater.
3: <laughs> yeah that is weird Mm. And all the other names are like seem to be plucked specifically from various historical figures. Yeah. I mean, presumably Ruth Bader Ginsburg was already working somewhere in yes. in the judicial system and so they they may have been aware of her and considered that she would at some point become uh, a Supreme Court justice.
2: Yeah, she was uh when I was looking her up, she was in the DC District of Columbia court system. Yeah, and I
3: I mean, based on the movie RBG, she was already like pretty well known she had she had a lot of huge establishing cases before she was nominated but yeah it's uh it's corny it's really really watered down simplified view of how the supreme court works yeah like in the same way that the west wing is a watered down version of the white house but i feel like this is dumbed down even further than that like this is dumbed down enough that kids could follow it like i think um you know mr smith goes to washington was actually more complicated and more yeah. Involved in the process than this yeah, was. Yeah,
2: exactly. And and but that has an arc, you know. It, right. It's it's all about what's going on, and then there's a conclusion. Yeah. Um. And and, and I feel you find like,
3: out what happens in the case that they're deciding yeah. the entire time.
2: I almost feel like this this play or which it was originally. Yeah. I I almost envision it more like a Twelve Angry Men. Yeah. But it's you know it's the justices hammering out this case in in the courts or in their in their private time you know you can have it go over the course of days but to me the more interesting movie is getting all the justices involved in this one case
3: well yeah that would be interesting like a 12 angry men but it's like nine angry justices basically but another thing that's weird like not only are the cases unresolved but like we said the barely touched upon relationship between him and her like romantic relationship just comes and goes his wife never comes back that's completely unresolved like every single storyline is completely dropped by the end of the movie we don't know what happened with any of the cases we don't know how their relationship we don't even know what happened to him that put him in the hospital like she makes the point in their last conversation together that the doctors don't even know what happened yet it's like what happened in this movie what do we know happened (laughs) just two people talked to each other for a few days that's all we know that happened in this movie and a guy's wife left him, I guess, and somebody died at the very beginning. Yeah, but that's it. So it's it's very unsatisfying. I think I give it a thumbs down. Actually, I I would have liked for this to have been more fun as a Supreme Court movie. And I liked Top obviously from from Ronald Neem and with Walter Matthau last year. But this is not up to that standard for me. So I I say this is a thumbs down for me
4: yeah I mean I feel like I'm on the fence about it it's not it's not the worst movie no but it's it's not great uh, I, I I feel like I, I would give it a reluctant
2: thumbs up Richard um, yeah I I am like thumbs middle all yeah. the way but um, I guess I'm gonna give it a, a thumbs down because okay. I definitely wouldn't watch this again. Um, and I don't even... I wouldn't even know really how to describe the plot.
3: Yeah. Um, where's this going letterboxed? Jess?
4: Um, It's not super high. um, But I have it at... Oh, where'd it go? Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, there it is. Okay. I have it at 83 out of 111. It is below just a gigolo and above sob
2: richard uh i have it at 60 which puts it above nobody's perfect and below kill and kill again
3: i have it at 59 which is just (laughs) under coming at you and just above underground aces
4: like that i gave it the lowest and the reluctant thumbs up Yep,
3: and i put it in 59th and i gave it a thumbs down
4: which is you like everything like out there you I mean, weirdo.
3: yeah, I don't know. I can't explain myself. <laughs> the director here was Ronald Neame. He also played the voice of the speaker over the PA system at the tennis court. In 1942, he was nominated for a special effects Oscar for his work on One of Our Aircraft is Missing. In 46, he adapted Charles Dickens' Great Expectations for David Lean, which earned him an Oscar nomination. He directed Scrooge in 70 with Albert Finney and Alec Guinness. He also directed Poseidon Adventure, The Odesophile, Meteor, Hopscotch, on the way to this. His last directing credit was in 1990 at the age of 79, and he passed away in 2010, 99 years old. The writers of the play and film were Jerome Lawrence and Robert E. Lee. Together, they also wrote the play adapted into Inherit the Wind. Oh, wow. Which I think is how this film came to be, because they were well-known, and they were like, oh, they're doing another trial movie, Yeah. and it should be good, and it wasn't as good.
2: Because Inherit the Wind is all about the trial. But it's also
3: based on a real trial, whereas this is a completely fabricated thing. Robert E. Lee's wife, Janet Waldo, was also a famous voice actress who provided the voices for Hanna-Barbera characters Judy Jetson, Penelope Pitstop, Josie from Josie and the Pussycats, and Morticia Adams in the early 70s *Adams Family Cartoon. Hmm. Cinematographer Fred J. Konakamp won an Oscar for cinematography on The Towering Inferno and was nominated for his work on Patton and Islands in the Stream. He also lit Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Billy Jack, Papillon, Fun with Dick and Jane, and The Swarm. We've seen his work in When Time Ran Out, The Hunter, and First Family last year, and he's back later this season lighting Carbon Copy. Editor Peter E. Berger, his first editing credit was on Hot Potato, which was allegedly remade as Force 5. So far we've seen his work in Last Married Couple in America and Oh God Book 2. He's back later this year for Mommy Dearest. Later he cuts Star Trek 4, 5, Generations, Insurrection, Fatal Attraction, Hocus Pocus, Lawnmower Man 2, and the first Alvin and the Chipmunks movie. Walter Matthau was Dan Snow. His character was based on Justice William O. Douglas, the longest serving and most left-leaning Supreme Court justice of all time. Like Snow, Douglas was famous for skipping screenings for anything deemed pornographic because of his strong belief in the protections of the First Amendment. Mathow was also Lieutenant Garber in The Taking of Pelham 123, Charlie Varick and Charlie Varick, Oscar Madison and The Odd Couple, Albert Einstein in IQ, and we've seen him already in Little Miss Marker and Hopscotch from director Ronald Neem, the same director as this film. Jill Clayburgh played Ruth Loomis. At the time, her cousin, Michael Eisner, was president of Paramount, and a couple years later, he was named CEO of rival studio Disney. Clayburgh was nominated for Best Actress for 1978 for An Unmarried Woman, and her following role, 1979s Starting Over. We saw her last year in It's My Turn, and we'll see her next as Barbara Gordon, not that Barbara Gordon, in I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can, written by her husband, playwright David Rabe, and starring It's My Turn co-stars Diane Wiest and Daniel Stern. It also represents the first screen pairing of the Wet Bandits, Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci.
4: Which Barbara Gordon is she not? Batgirl. <laughs> Batgirl. Bad girl. Bad okay. girl.
3: <laughs> Clayberg also portrayed Ally McBeal's mother on that show, and her final feature film appearance was as Kristen Wiggs' mother in Bridesmaids, though sadly she passed away at 66 from leukemia before the film was released. Her daughter Lily Rabe has been a featured player of FX's American Horror Story for 10 years now. Barnard Hughes played Chief Justice James Jefferson Crawford. He was Townie in Midnight Cowboy, Colonel Hendricks in Where's Papa, Dr. Proctor in Cold Turkey, Judge Baker in Oh God, Mr. Merlin on Mr. Merlin, Dr. Gibbs in Tron, Grandpa in The Lost Boys, and Father Maurice in Sister Act 2.
2: He'll always be Grandpa from The Lost Boys for me.
3: Jan Sterling played Christine Snow. She was Lorraine Minosa in Ace in the Hole, Sally McKee in The High and the Mighty, and Mary Abbott in The Human Jungle. This was her final film. James Stevens played Mason Woods. He was Father Prestwick in 37 episodes of Father Downing Mysteries, and a voice in 13 episodes of Courage the Cowardly Dog. He's probably best known for playing a very similar role to this on the Paper Chase TV series. This was also his first feature film.
2: I feel like he is a very underutilized character with nothing going on.
3: Yeah. Almost useless to the story. Wiley Harker played Justice Harold Webb. He was Verlin Heller in The Straight Story and Principal Smith in Sugar and Spice. F.J. O'Neill played Justice Waldo Thompson. He was an ARP project member in Close Encounters and a general in The Hunt for Red October. Charles Lampkin played Justice Josiah Clues. He's Pops in Cocoon, and we saw him last as the butler in Blake Edwards' SOB. Lou Palter played Justice Benjamin Halperin. He was Isidore Strauss in Titanic. Richard McMurray was Justice Richard Carey. He was JR in Raging Bull last year. Herb Vigren played Justice Ambrose Quincy. He was Lurvie, the farmhand in Charlotte's Web, and he was also Dr. Kramer in our Getting Wasted Minisode and a lab manager in Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. Edmund Stolber played committee chairman. Last year he was Ezra in Seems Like Old Times, a doctor in Witches Brew, and a psychiatrist in Oh God, Book Two. Noble Willingham played the Nebraska attorney. We saw him last year as a shitty doctor in Brewbaker, and earlier this year as Major Andrews in Harry's War and Charlie Barton in Joe Dante's The Howling. He was also General Taylor in Good Morning Vietnam, Clay Stone in City Slickers, and Walker's Buddy CD on Walker, Texas Ranger. His name could also easily have been a message found in Charlotte's Web. Noble Willingham. <laughs> Richard McKenzie played Hostile Senator. He was Principal Bacon in Corvette Summer, Ron Stiegler in Being There, and Willis in MacGyver episode Ugly Duckling. Anne Doran played a storekeeper. She was Mrs. Carol Stark in Rubble Without a Cause, and Maggie O'Neill in You Can't Take It With You. Dallas Allender played Norman. He was Chester Biggs in The Black Marble and back later this season in a minisode for Below the Belt and as alderman in Continental Divide. Olive Dunbar played Mrs. Radibow. She was Mrs. Gordon in The Hearse. Hugh Gillen played Southern Senator. He's the mayor in Back to the Future 3 and he's sheriffs in Psycho 2 and 3 as well as Elvira's Mistress of the Dark. Arthur Adams played Custodian No. 1. Last season we saw him in Disney titles Midnight Madness and Last Flight of Noah's Ark and he's also Mr. Jenks in Coming to America. Nick Angotti played Plaintiff's Attorney. He was Prodsky in Cobra and an engineer in Die Hard 2. Richard Balin played Photographer. He was Roberts in Graduation Day. Bob Sherman played Senator No. 2. He was USS Wayne Crewman in The Spy Who Loved Me, a senator in Superman 4, and also Anthony Graves in MacGyver Trail to Doomsday. Sig Frolik played Custodian No. 2. He was a plane maintenance man in Airplane Last Season. Ken Dumain played a guard. He was a regular extra on Cheers and credited as customer in 26 episodes. Dick Winslow played the court barber. He was Dick Schultz in Airport. He also has a soundtrack credit on Pete Davidson's King of Staten Island for writing a song called Trojan Warriors Charge. He was also a tourist in Midnight Madness. Joe Michael Terry played Law Clerk number 1. He was a writer on Love American Style. BB Drake played a nurse. We've seen her previously as a female guard in Xanadu and as Dr. Young in Oh God, Book 2. She's also credited as Jordan Housekeeper in Space Jam, so I'm assuming that's a housekeeper in the Michael Jordan household. Right. Mrs. Perley in Friday After Next, Mrs. Jackson in Boomerang, and she provides voices in Baby's Kids, The Proud Family, and The Boondocks. Richard DeAngelis played a news producer. He was Colonel Raymond Forster on The Wire. Tony D. Head was a law clerk. He was Major Bobby Reed on The Wire. And more recently, he was a WGC anchorman in Todd Phillips' Joker. Martha Scott had a cameo appearance, uncredited. She was Jacobell in The Ten Commandments, Miriam and Ben-Hur, and Emily Webb in 1940's Our Town. Those are all the credits I have for this one. Oh, that's all? Sorry, Jess. No more for you. <laughs> I think that's everything for First Monday in October. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Hockey Talk Freeway, which IMDb describes like so. A satire of American progression in which a mayor tries to bribe an official to ensure a ramp connects Ticklaw to an up and coming interstate. When his plan fails, the town's residents are forced to take matters into their own hands. We leave you now with a trailer for Honky Tonk Freeway. The
1: town of Ticklaw does not qualify for an exit based on our demographic analyzation. (laughs)
0: There's a sleepy little southern town. We're desperate. This is a resort town. We gotta get our tourists here. Which is about to wake up and put itself on the map.
1: We are all, each and every one of us, being tested how to get them here with no exit.
0: The whole world thought they could pass it by.
1: Could you show a little confidence in my ability to handle this situation?
0: But they were wrong.
1: It's a freeway. It's America on the <laughs>
0: EMI presents a John Schlesinger film, Honky Tonk Freeway, the story of a spunky little town that decided to tell the world where to get off. What in the world are you doing to those poor tourists? Oh, we're just showing them a real good time. Everybody's going faster. faster. I've never seen you become so abusive. I'm robbing a bank. I don't have to be nice when you're out there on the road and you you could explode because you're holding back your feelings every mile. The way
1: living, I love you, you crazy, I need you and I want to make you happy I don't know if that's what I really want out of life
0: you me for me to be sure I'm not an alcoholic can I get you anything
2: to drink
5: I'll have five
0: fashions. If it moves or grooves on wheels, skis, or hooves, you'll find it on the honky-tonk freeway. Everybody's going faster, faster,
5: Everybody's going faster, You look like a penguin.
2: And you do not know how to drive a car. I am your superior. Put on your face. let
1: show them a real good time. A real, real
0: good time. time. Honky Tonk Freeway. Get off on it.